Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis on how the devil knew Abraham's seed was the beginning of his destruction and how he wanted to do all he could to stop it. Download this message for free at friendshipwithgod.org. Here's Tom Cantor with some highlights from yesterday's message. When he's in situation impossible, Abraham is going to turn to God and call on the name of the Lord. With those words, thy seed, God is starting to unfold his great plan to rescue man. God, Jehovah Jesus, was looking at Abraham and he himself knew that he would become a part of Abraham's seed. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our expository study from the book of Genesis every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday on the Friendship with God radio program. So when God looks at us in our lostness, in our helpless, helplessness, in our hopelessness against the devil who has the power of death, he has pity. He had pity. He had compassion on us. And so as we saw in verse 14, when he says the children were partakers of flesh and blood. Flesh and blood dies. That's what flesh dies. Blood dies. Flesh and blood dies. And so when he saw the children were partakers of flesh and blood, he saw us, described in verse 15, as terrorized by the fear of death. And so he decided to destroy him that had the power of death. And that's a very interesting word that's used there. That is the same word that we get our word cauterize from. And it means to make useless. Cauterize means to make useless. You know, I told you before about how we used to dehorn our little kid goats with this red-hot iron that we would burn and, and brands around their horn buds. And what we were doing is making their horn buds useless so they didn't grow horns. So we cauterized them, made them useless. Cauterization is a medical practice to make useless. A nerve that's cauterized will no longer transmit signals. It's useless. Blood vessels that are cauterized will no longer transport blood. That's how they make bleeding stop. But those blood vessels then become useless. Cells that are cauterized are no longer function. They're useless. Cauterization makes useless. And that's the word that he used here for to describe how he's going to destroy the devil. He's going to make him useless. So when we plug that term in to verse 14, we could read it like this. That through death he might cauterize him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the goal of the Lord Jesus Christ was to cauterize, was to make useless or put out of commission the devil who had the power of death. And he did this. He did this through death. That's very important. This is, as it says there, through death. The person who did this is God the Son. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Jehovah Jesus. And notice what it says in verse 16, that he took not on him what? What does it say? The nature of angels, right? He took not on him the nature of angels. That's what it says. There is a nature of angels. There is a nature of man. There is a nature of God. The nature of God is not to die. God doesn't die. That's the nature of God. God cannot die. That's part of his nature. But the nature of man is that man dies. Man can die. So when God took on him the nature of man, 
is described here as him becoming a partaker along with men of flesh and blood. He took on himself flesh and blood so that he could die. He became a partaker of flesh and blood so that he could die. Because now God has taken on another nature, the nature of man, so that he can die. And when he became a 100% man, he did die. That was his purpose, and that's how he cauterized the devil. He did die like any other man. When he said that he would lay down his life, that does not mean that he died differently from any other man. It means that he turned over himself to be killed as he was. And so he, he didn't just dismiss his spirit, but he died. He suffered like any man would suffer before and on the cross. He bled like any man would bleed. He gasped for air as his lungs filled up with fluid like any man would gasp for air on a cross. And when on the cross, when he said, I thirst, he thirsted like any man would thirst who was suffering from dehydration. And when he cried out with his last breath, the words of David, king of Israel, when he repeated David's words, into thy hands I commit my spirit, he breathed his last breath and he died, just like David died, just like any other man would breathe his last breath and die. Because it says in verse 14, he also likewise, in the same way, took part of the same, the same flesh and blood that dies. Why? That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them. He did that, as it says in the end of verse 17, so that he could make reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, whenever we read this word, make, it's very important, make, in that verse, we think of the word done, done, make, done, which is the last word of Psalm 22, which is the description of the crucifixion. And the last two verses of Psalm 22 tells what we do as the servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are described as the seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this, or he hath made this, or asa is the Hebrew word, ki asa, last two words of that psalm. In other words, that he did this. So we declare what he did when he became man, when God became man, when he died on a cross, he did or he made reconciliation or atonement for the sins of the people. When he became man, he died on the cross. He accomplished reconciliation for the sins of the people. Or in his own words from the cross, he finished reconciliation for the sins of the people. Now, verse 16 here in Hebrews 2 is all about choice. Choice. Verse 16 tells us, For verily he took not on him, the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. He verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. He chose, first in the negative, he chose for verily he took not on him the nature of angels. That describes what he chose not to do. That's his choice. He chose not to take on the nature of angels. 
Did angels also fall into sin? Yes. Could he have become the savior of angels? Yes. But he decided to let the angels go, the fallen angels. He decided to leave the fallen angels forever lost without any hope and without any help. The Lord never purposed to be the savior of angels. So he took not on him the nature of angels. He never chose to save fallen angels from their sin. Therefore, verily, he took not on him the nature of angels. That was his first choice in verse 16, to not save fallen angels. But he did decide, that was choice number one, he did decide, choice number two, to become the savior of fallen men. And now we come to, that's the second part, where it says he took on him the seed of Abraham. So in order to become the savior of man, in order to die for the sins of mankind, God chose to take on him the seed of Abraham. Seed of Abraham. Just as he could have chosen to save angels, but he didn't, he chose not to, he could have chosen to take on any man's seed, but he chose Abraham. He chose to take on the seed of Abraham. And God would take on himself the seed of Abraham. So the beginning of verse 16 tells us what he did not take on, nature of angels. And then it says that he made a choice. He became, he took on the nature of the seed of Abraham. <laughs> and, the nat- and, and the seed of Abraham has a nature. <laughs> it's, anyway, he became a part of the seed of Abraham. He, he became Jewish. He looked like the seed of Abraham. He looked Jewish. He communicated like the seed of Abraham. He communicated like Jewish people communicate. For example, he answered questions with questions. That's very Jewish. So in Matthew 21, when they was come to the temple, the chief priests, the elders, that came unto him as he was teaching, he said, By what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing. doesn't answer the question. Which if you tell me, and likewise, I'll tell you about what authority. Baptism of John, was it from uh, heaven or, or of men? Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Man, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said unto him, What's written in the law? <laughs> he had the mannerism of the seed of Abraham. He has a, a Jewish mannerism. Drive a point home. Jewish mothers are good at this. By always saying, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you know. Like in John 14, too. My father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, <laughs> you know. Anyway, I go to prepare a place for you. I'm telling you, in my father's house are many mansions. What? If it weren't so, don't you think I'd tell you? All right. So he chose to take on him the seed of a man described in the Bible as a Syrian ready to perish. He chose to take on him the seed of a man who had no children, who was barren. And this is what it means when he said he chose to take on him the seed of Abraham. Now you look at Hebrews 2.14. And see where it says he took part of the same and just replace it from verse 16 with those words he took on the seed of Abraham and see how it comes out. He also likewise took on him the seed of Abraham that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. He took on him the seed of Abraham that through death he might destroy him that had the power of the devil. So in Genesis 12, 7, when God spoke to Abraham for the first time about his seed, and now you think about Hebrews 2, 14, where he took on him the seed of Abraham, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death. 
Who do you think was particularly interested in this first reference to the seed of Abraham? Who do you think that might be? The devil. That pops his ears up, right? Because he took on him the seed of Abraham that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death that is the devil. So Satan's listening very, very carefully when God said to Abraham, thy seed. He just heard his death warrant because God was going to take on him the seed of Abraham and through death he was going to be destroyed. That power, that's the devil. So when God said to Abraham, thy seed, he was telling Abraham that number one, he would have a seed. And when the devil heard about Abraham's seed and he just didn't hear about, you know, somebody who was infertile going to have a baby. This, he heard about his destruction coming. So from this point on, what do you think the devil is going to try to do? He's got to try to destroy the seed. He's going to try to stop the seed. He's going to try to spoil the seed. He's going to mount attack after attack after attack on the seed of Abraham. That's the key to understanding the whole of the Old Testament. That's the key right there. With these words, unto thy seed, we start one wave after another of attack on Abraham's seed. And that's what the Old Testament is. It's a, it's a record of one wave of attack after another. Whole of the Old Testament is a history of the devil's attempt to stop the seed, to spoil the seed. That's why the book of Esther is so important. So before God said to Abraham, unto thy seed, it wasn't known which seed line God had chosen to take on to become a man that through death he might destroy the devil. It's just like Hitler in the invasion. Hitler knew that the invasion of Europe was coming, but he wasn't sure where. He thought it was in Calais. He wasn't sure where. But once God said in Genesis twelve seven unto thy seed, it was now known that God was going to take on the seed of Abraham and he was going to, to destroy. This was going to be the seed of the woman, which he would take on, that through death he would destroy the devil. Once Hitler knew that it was going to be Normandy Beach, then he focused all of his powers and wave after wave of bombers and tanks and troops, etc. Now that describes what's going on for the rest of the history of the Old Testament. So we can stop now and say we know the Bible, right? <laughs> It's one attack after another on Abraham's seed. Just as uh, Hitler knew. If he allowed that invasion to happen in Normandy, he would be destroyed. So from Genesis 12, 7, Satan now knows that if he allows the seed of Abraham to go forward, he's going to be destroyed. And that was a promise that God made to Abraham that involved his seed. That's why it's so important. So what we're going to see next in the history of Abraham in Egypt is the first attack on the seed of Abraham. Spoil the seed. Stop the seed. Because when God said, unto thy seed, this is God who also said about the man and the woman, the two shall be one flesh. So when he was saying thy seed, he was saying Abraham and Sarah I see as one flesh. So when I make this promise to Abraham, I'm talking about Abraham's one flesh with his wife, Sarah. So it may appear on the surface, as we read this, that when we read the history here in Genesis 12, that we're just reading about a particular weakness of Abraham being in the wrong place at the wrong time for Sarah. But there's much more that's happening here because this is, like I said, the first of the many attacks on the seed of Abraham. This is an attack of the devil on the purpose of God. 
to destroy the devil. So with this in view, now we see this in a different light as we look at this history of what happened to Abraham in Egypt. So now we see in verses 9 and 10, as we're back in Genesis, we see in verses 9 and 10 that there was this terrible famine. And so it was either the Canaanite or the famine that caused Abraham to keep on moving south, verse 9. And we see in verse 10 that the famine was severe. The famine was grievous in the land. And now all of a sudden, in verse 11 and 12, we see as Abraham is about to come into Egypt that he has this strange, gripping fear that comes over him, an inexplainable fear. Abraham has a whole scenario worked out, and it's so definite the way he described it in this scenario. He's never been to Egypt, but he's in terror over what's going to happen to him in Egypt. And he describes to Sarah with such definite things that there's not, you know, maybe or nothing like that. So Sarah was evidently a very beautiful woman. And that was not only Abraham's view, but the Egyptians shared that view as well. And Abraham's fear has become so detailed and so exact of what is going to happen that he tells Sarah it's going to happen in verse 11 when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said to Sarah, Behold, now I know the fair woman to look upon. Therefore, it shall come to pass. Not it may, but it shall. It will. 100%. When the Egyptians shall see thee, that they shall say, This is his wife, and they will kill me and save you alive. Dad, today you talked about how Abraham was afraid when he came into Egypt. I must admit that the picture of Abraham afraid is not how I picture Abraham. I think of Abraham as fearless. I think of Abraham as fearless when he went to war against five kings to recover Lot. I think of Abraham as fearless when he was going ahead to sacrifice Isaac. But the picture of Abraham fearful is not how I think of Abraham. What can we learn from this picture of seeing Abraham afraid? This is a very valuable picture for us, David, because... There is a great verse in 1 Corinthians 10, 13 that's just pregnant with meaning as it relates to to the value of seeing Abraham uh, afraid. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also Make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. It explains in this verse how when we get afraid, what happens is that a temptation, and I love the way it puts it there, it just takes us. It catches us off guard. It catches us by surprise. It's something that we did not expect. It's all of a sudden that there's over a period of a few weeks, we have a pain in a certain part of our body, and we go to the doctor, and he images it with ultrasound, and the technician says something like, I don't like what I see. And that's like a temptation taking us. And he says, I'm going to call up the doctor right away, and we're going to get the CT scan done right now. And they do the CT scan, and the technician comes back and says, you have a tumor the size of a tennis ball. That's a temptation that all of a sudden, that wasn't expected. It was just a pain in the stomach, but it's something that takes us. But the great thing about what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, is that these things, we're not the only one. These are things that are common to man. And what happened to Abraham and being caught in this position where he was afraid 
and it took him is common. And so we see, as happened to Abraham, so happens to us. But what is the solution? What was the solution for Abraham? What is the solution for us? The verse says, it's the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. That's when we have to rely on God's faithfulness. As it says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 24, faithful is he that calleth you who also will do it. When we are afraid, what time I am afraid, I will trust in God. Trust in what about God? Trust in his faithfulness. And it says that he will not suffer. He will not allow. He sees, he knows, he knows what we are going through. And he says, I will not allow him to be tempted above what he's able. He will not suffer. You know, it's very interesting when the Lord Jesus Christ was with Peter and before the crucifixion, it says he was speaking to Peter in Luke 22, 31 through 32, and, it's, and he said, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he might sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. When thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. So in other words, he looked at what Peter was about to go through, and he said, I've put a limit on it, Peter, and I've seen what's going to happen, and I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. That's the picture of the Lord Jesus Christ that we need to have in our minds. The faithful high priest, ever living to make intercession for us, Why? So that we will not fail, so that our faith will not fail. That's the picture of him, will not suffer us to do what? To be tempted above that we are able. You see, he wants us to succeed, and this is so difficult for us to to realize, but he wants the best for us. When he looked at his disciples in Luke 22, 28, same passage, he looked at the disciples few verses before. And he said to them, he addressed to them, ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. We look at a verse like that and we say, really, Lord, is that really how you see your disciples with all of their failures and all of that they do wrong and everything that they have done? And you were looking and also and seeing that Peter was going to deny you. And you didn't look at them and say they're a group of schlemiels. But you really looked at them and said, you are the ones who have succeeded. You are the ones who have continued with me in my temptations. And the answer is yes. That's how he saw his disciples as the ones who were succeeded and continued with him in temptations. And that's how he sees us. He sees the best. He sees the successes. And he overlooks all these other things. And that's how we should see him as wanting the best for us and not allowing us to go through what we're not able to. And that, how does he do it? By making a way for us to escape. As Peter said in 2 Peter 1.4, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So he gives to us in the Bible great and precious promises so that we are to let the Bible infuse us with these great and precious promises so that we can have the way to escape the corruption that's in the world uh, through lust. It says in Jude one twenty four. now unto him that is able 
to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. He's able to keep us from falling. How? By these exceeding great and precious promises. You see, what God has in view is that we should endure. That's the word. We should endure. That's what it means when it says able to bear the temptations. The picture that he has given us of Abraham in Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, where it says, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater than he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So God wants us to patiently endure, and he makes the way for us to escape by patiently enduring through the exceeding great and precious promises. And that's the great picture we have of Abraham. In the fear, yes, but enduring also, yes. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. Now, Tom Cantor wants to encourage you to witness to your lost Jewish friends that are around you, those that are your doctors, your lawyers, your business owners that you run into, a Jewish neighbor that you have, someone you go to school with, someone that you know that's Jewish and needs to be reached with the gospel. Now, Tom Cantor has his life story on DVD and in a booklet form to help you to reach them. And Tom Cantor wants to personally pray for them and give you a free gift to reach them. We can send that gift to you or we can have that gift sent directly to them. You can fill out our online form at friendshipwithgod.org to get this free gift for your lost Jewish friend. Again, friendshipwithgod.org, or call us today at 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening to Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program. Join us again tomorrow.